If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As Henry VIII stood along the walls of Southsea Castle, On the 19th of July, 1545, the air was hot and still. Yet England was on the brink of disaster. The French fleet had arrived, and they had revenge on their minds after the fall of Boulogne in 1544. And it was then that Henry saw it. His great warship, the Mary Rose, as it lurched onto its starboard side, and descended into the depths, taking with it the lives of almost 500 men. But what exactly led Henry's beloved ship to sink on what should have been an easy 20-minute voyage? I'm Emily Griffiths, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heat of naval battle to the manoeuvres of royal politicking and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. In this episode, we're zeroing in on the pivotal moment in the whole story when the Mary Rose met its end at the Battle of the Solent. After years of back and forth in fighting between the European superpowers, Henry VIII was locked in a bitter conflict with his old rival, Francis I of France. But now, it's 1545, and Francis has bigger plans. A full-on invasion of England. So, we're back to where we left off last episode with the French fleet lurking off the coast of the Isle of Wight, ready to launch their fateful attack. All of the men that Henry could muster were now poised on the precipice in Portsmouth. What could Henry and his forces possibly do against such a threat? To lead us into this battle, I spoke to geographer Dr Dominic Fontana. Henry VIII had really good military intelligence because he was able to time his arrival in Portsmouth perfectly. He arrived on the 15th of July. The French fleet turns up on the 18th of July, which is remarkably tight time precision for Tudor England. The 
English fleet was sitting out at Spithead. The French fleet came round to uh, St. Helens Roads at the eastern end of the island and really started to look at what the situation was. They couldn't land their troops at Portsmouth. They couldn't land their troops at Southampton because the English fleet was blocking their way up the Solent. Now, the English ships were sitting out in the Solent on their anchor cables, swinging with the tide. The French fleet were doing exactly the same, but slightly further out in the English Channel, just off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight. The French would have been delighted had the English decided to come out of Spithead and directly attack the French because the French ships had similar broadside firing guns to the English, and because they had superior numbers of ships, they would have been able to overwhelm the defending English fleet very quickly. The English weren't going to do that because it was not to their advantage. But the French had got their secret weapon that they brought with them from the Mediterranean, and that is about 25 Mediterranean galleys. They had big bronze guns mounted in their bows. They were powered by oars rowed by prisoners of war and convicts. The Mediterranean galleys could move independently of the wind. They could move independently of the tidal currents, which gave them a great advantage in the confined waters of the Solent. And so we have a situation with the summer day, the 19th of July, 1545, in which there's a high-pressure weather system sitting over southern England. So it's hot, the air is still. The English ships could not move because they needed wind to fill their sails and give them the motive power that they needed to be able to manoeuvre their guns onto the French ships. With the weather so decidedly against them, the English ships now faced a new wave of assault from Francis's deadly quick ships. The French Admiral decided to send a group of five French galleys into the attack. They moved into the Solent and took up position at a place known as No Man's Land, halfway between the French fleet and the English fleet, And it's an area of the Solent which is relatively shallow. So the big English ships couldn't sail there and the galleys could because they didn't draw very much water underneath their their vessels. So they grouped up at no man's land and then started to run in towards the bows of the English ships. Now, the French galleys have got forward-facing artillery. The English ships don't. So that means that the French can bring guns that they can fire directly at the bows of the English ships without the English being able to fire back at the French galleys. Their main armament was designed to be used as broadside. So they've got lots of guns along the sides of the ship. But in order to bring those to bear, you have to have your ship moving through the water and making a passage which puts the enemy on the side of the ship and not directly ahead. The English fleet was stuck. 
they were unable to move and unable to return fire on their opponents. But the tide was about to turn. And we're also able to tell what the tidal currents were for the day because we can calculate that from the moon phase and the geography of the area. And it's exactly the same as it is today. And we know that high water was about nine o'clock in the morning that day, which in the Solent gives you a tidal current running from east to west from about eight o'clock in the morning up till about, about midday. So through that morning run, the French sent their galleys in to attack the English ships for a period of several hours before the English could finally get some wind with which to move their ships and bring the English guns to bear on the attacking French. That had to happen late in the afternoon when the afternoon sea breeze blows up, which provides a good wind from the southwest. That is what the Mary Rose picked up for her final manoeuvre across the Solent. With the wind now filling its sails, the Mary Rose was heading straight into battle. Yet while those on board didn't know it, this would be one of the ship's last acts. So we know that the Mary Rose sank latish in the afternoon, so probably somewhere around four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and was in the process of making a passage northwards across the Solent from, from where she'd started off-ride. So it's a journey that would have taken the Mary Rose probably about 20 minutes to make. In a way, it's not surprising that she tried to do that because you can just see how it would be on board the Mary Rose that they'd been taking incoming fire from, from the French for several hours without being able to make much of an impression on the attackers. The crew of the Mary Rose would have known that Henry VIII himself was watching them. They would have known that they were expected to do their best for their king and country to defend England from attack by the French. So it's not surprising that the men of the Mary Rose would have wanted to get going. But... What exactly happened in those last 20 minutes that led the ship to disaster? In that last 20 minutes of making her passage from somewhere off-ride up to where she actually sank, the Mary Rose did a run in towards an engagement with the French. We know that she fired her broadside of guns from the starboard side because some of the guns were found discharged, they'd been fired, they were all run out. The gun ports were all open on the starboard side. We know that at least one of the guns was in the process of being reloaded when she sank. So they'd done that part of the, the, the journey, and that might have taken them perhaps eight or nine minutes to actually open fire and attack the uh, French galleys. And then after that, and it's quite interesting that where she was heading is a very strange location. Where she actually sank 
is not where you would want to place a ship in the Solent when it's under threat of French ships not very far away. Because if she turned to port, in other words, to turn back in to the main body of the English fleet, she'd have to turn very, very sharply. And that's difficult to do with a square-rigged, four-masted ship. You need to have the ship making a, a considerable speed through the water in order to be able to get the rudder to give you some directional control so that you can run back. And from where she sank, that was very difficult to do. She would have found it easier to turn to starboard and then run towards the French ships. But had she done that, she would have been out on her own, surrounded by French ships, which would have been almost certain doom. So I don't think that the ship's master would have wanted to do either of those things. What is very intriguing is that if they'd carried on from where they sank and hadn't sunk at that point, they ran directly ahead for another 600 yards, the Mary Rose would have run aground. That would have taken them about six minutes to do. If they'd run aground, the Mary Rose would not have sunk. So it's a strange thing where she actually sank, that had she been able to make another 600 yards, she would have been quite safe, but a little embarrassed. Had she done that, the crew would not have died. We would not have been able to excavate the Mary Rose. Uh, and the situation would have been very different indeed. But as it was, the Mary Rose was unable to run aground. It never made it that far. As his great warship descended into the depths, Henry reportedly heard the cries from the men aboard ship as he stood watching out over the tragic scene from Southsea Castle. This moment of disaster hit the king particularly hard. And... As historian and Tudor specialist Tracy Borman told me, this wasn't just because of its wider political and military implications. Henry very strongly identified with the Mary Rose. It was you know, the first ship that he had built as king. He'd had a great influence on its design. It was his pride and joy. But he also had a close relationship with the men associated with it, and in particular with its commander, George Carew. Well, the Carews were a very powerful, ancient noble family. And George Carew was a real favourite of Henry's. And Henry had actually dined aboard another ship with Sir George Carew the night before the battle. And Carew was appointed vice admiral of the fleet and also given command of the Mary Rose. And Henry watched the encounter, the battle, with Carew's wife. Well, you might imagine she was distraught when she saw the Mary Rose uh, start to list and then start to sink very, very quickly. And Henry, of course, was no less distraught. But this is when we get a really, I think, nice, quite rare glimpse into the softer side of Henry VIII, I suppose, because his first thought was not so much the loss of his pride and joy, the Mary Rose, but of comforting George 
Carew's widow. The king was seen to put his arms around her and and try to trying to kind of console her in her grief. So I think Henry comes off particularly well from that because he himself must have been absolutely devastated by the loss of the Mary Rose. And I have to say, by one of his favourite men at court. The loss of Carew obviously took its toll on Henry. He also now faced a devastating wound to his pride. I think the Mary Rose was so close to Henry's heart because she was there for pretty much the whole time that he was king. And commissioning her was one of the very first things that Henry did as king. And he paid such close attention to the building and the design of the Mary Rose. She was his pride and joy. She represented all of his hopes and dreams for being king of England. And so his devastation when she sank must have been so heartbreaking. She really did come to epitomise Henry VIII. And it was like all of his hopes sort of lay in tatters, really, after she'd sunk to the bottom of the sea. But it wasn't only Henry's ambitions that had been sunk in the murky waters of the Solent. Although incorrectly stated in the newsreels from when she was raised, out of around 500 men on board the Mary Rose, it's thought that only 35 survived. Remains of over a third of the crew have been found, but the rest have been lost to sea. Hannah Matthews, curator at the Mary Rose Trust, recently conducted an investigation into every human skeletal element recovered in the original excavation, looking into how they went together and where they were found. I spoke to her to find out what she uncovered. So my interest in the the human remains in particular, I think my my love of history has always revolved around people and I think in terms of a primary resource, getting close to the people themselves is just incredible and and a real privilege as well. I looked at the entire human skeletal assemblage that is here at the Mary Rose. So every human skeletal element that was recovered uh, during the excavations, I looked at every single element. So I worked to about 9,000 bones for a few months last summer. And I was looking at quantitative analysis, so looking at the likely number of individuals and using new methods to apply to the assemblage um, that have developed in recent years. In terms of a minimum number of individuals, that very much matched the original um, analysis that was done back in the 1980s and 1990s. The new methods that we were looking at were estimating the potential original population. So we have got a number for that, but we're looking at sort of how that relates to, to evidence, other evidence that we have. So it was really exciting to apply these new methods. Um, and also looking at the distribution of the skeletal remains, so how they reflected where the remains were found when they were being excavated. I mean, it's the final resting places of these individuals on board. So really that snapshot of the final moments during the sinking. Piecing together the human remains and tracing back records of their location on the Mary Rose wreck, Hannah made a poignant discovery. I think what really stood out to me once I'd finished counting every skeletal element recorded against where it was found, you could really see the shape of the ship or the the surviving part of the ship from the human skeletal remains just themselves. So there were 
large accumulations of human remains around the areas where we believe the companionways were. So essentially the escape routes that the individuals were potentially hoping to take at the time and having these accumulations, high accumulations of, of skeletal remains, that was the moment where I, I really thought, my goodness, they, they were potentially really trying hard to escape at the time of the sinking. And that pattern was very clear from the, the evidence of the research I was doing. Yeah, I think that to me was was the real sobering moment of they were trying to get off and out of the ship, but obviously couldn't. Before we carry on, we need to establish one important fact. These efforts to escape were hindered from the very start because the men on board the Mary Rose were trapped below unyielding anti-boarding netting, meaning that they had very little hope of cutting themselves free. Made from rope in a tight diamond pattern, covered with tar and stretched above the upper deck, this netting was meant to prevent attackers from clambering on board ship. But in this case, it ultimately stopped the men on board climbing out of a sinking ship to safety. And even if they had somehow got free, it's unlikely that many of the men could swim. So the Mary Rose, in terms of what has been recovered from her, and her story and what we know of her and those final final moments it's very much a time capsule of that day of that moment of her sinking and of the lives of the men on board in their final moments from a human skeletal assemblage point of view it's really rare to have such a large assemblage with a known date and potential cause of death and that same uh, sort of death incident church graveyards for example you'd have a range of people of different causes of deaths of different dates whereas it's really incredible that we can say 19th of July 1545 this is what happened and this is why we have what we do what's been recovered. But what exactly can we attribute the deaths of almost 500 men to? What was it that led the Mary Rose to sink in the first place? Let's delve into what happened that fateful day. I spoke to Dominic about an interesting theory he has about what caused the sinking. In charge of them on board the Mary Rose that day was Sir George Carew. He was an aristocrat. He'd been appointed vice-admiral the day before by Henry himself at dinner. He had joined the Mary Rose that day or the day before he would not have had time to develop any technical understanding of what he was trying to do or means of communication with his crew. But he would have wanted, like the crew wanted, to be able to attack the French as aggressively as he could. So he really had, and the crew had, an interest in attacking the French and getting the ship up and moving. Now, that gives us a potential scenario in which had the French hit the Mary Rose during about a five-hour period in the morning of the 19th of July, then the Mary Rose could well have been shipping water into her hold for some time before she made her final passage. And certainly I think that there is evidence to support that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We know from the records of John Dean, one of the divers who recovered the Mary Rose in the 19th century, that he had recovered and sold the lowermost part of the ship's main pump in auction in 1840. Was this broken-up pump a spare? One of the other intriguing pieces of evidence here is that the remains of a man were discovered on the lower decks alongside a series of carpenter's tools. Although it was common practice to have the ship's carpenter prepared to block up any potential holes caused by enemy hits, could this man have been launching into action under emergency circumstances in the heat of battle? We also know that the, the cook had spent quite a bit of time and effort lifting his firewood from the bottom of the hold up and placing it on top of a big coil of ropes that was alongside the galley, possibly to try and keep it dry, because his responsibility would have been to provide meals for about 500 people. And if you've got 500 people complaining at you because they're not getting a hot meal, you're not going to be popular as a cook. So he'd taken a lot of effort to do that, to try and keep his firewood dry, possibly. So there were things going on at the point where she finally sank. Archaeological investigation hasn't shown us any evidence of a gaping hole in the side of the Mary Rose's hull. And as it sank on its starboard side, which is the side we still have, it would seem likely that the fatal shot would be here. However... Dominic proposes an alternate theory. Although we haven't got the absolute evidence archaeologically that shows a big hole in the side of the hull, because we simply don't, we can say that there's a good chance that the Mary Rose may have been hit sometime many hours before she actually sank, and that the crew had been trying to get water out of the hull before she set off on her final voyage, even one sort of four or five inch hole could have caused enough water to flow into the hull to destabilise the ship. Now, when you get a lot of water into the bottom of a, a ship, on the whole, the ship will remain upright and moderately stable until it reaches a certain point. So you can fill up the bottom of a a vessel for quite a long time before you start to really notice that there's a problem. And that could well have been the case in the Mary Rose, because if this process had taken several hours, there isn't an immediate rush, there isn't an immediate problem. Those in command would not have been aware of the difficulties going on elsewhere. They wouldn't have seen a problem because the ship would have been upright, she would have been felt perfectly stable, 
especially to a, a landlubber like uh, uh, Sir George Carew. But she would have felt slightly odd to the mariners who knew the ship well, because the way she would roll in the waves would be slightly slow and would hold slightly too long. So they would know that she wouldn't be quite right. But even they wouldn't know just how finely balanced the situation would be because they would be occupied in their own jobs, you know, of supplying ammunition to the guns, of of getting things organised, of making the ship go forward and so on. So they would have been heading into battle with all the fears and trepidations that that would hold for them. They'd be wanting to do their best. They'd be wanting to serve their king, serve their country and save England from invasion by the French. That's just one potential suggestion for the Mary Rose's demise. And over the years, many others have also been put forward. Right from when the Mary Rose herself sank in 1545, there have been numerous theories about why she sank. One thing I think is certain, that Henry VIII himself watched her sink, which is probably why there was no official report done or official investigation conducted into the sinking. There didn't need to be one because Henry himself had seen her sink. And it didn't really matter to Henry that much. He was interested in recovering his guns. Speculation over the years afterwards has ranged from all sorts of things. Um, Sir John Oglander claimed that it was because Henry VIII himself was leaving the ship and that all the people on board rushed over to one side to see him depart and that therefore the ship was overbalanced and because the ordnance wasn't tied up, it all slipped and she sank that way. Oglander was a 17th century politician and diarist and he seems to have mixed up two stories here. First, that Henry had dinner with the Vice-Admiral on board the Great Harry the night before the battle. And second, that the Mary Rose sank. After all, as we know the ship sank out in the Solent, it wouldn't be very feasible for the King to just be leaving mid-battle. Similar theories about the Mary Rose carrying such a precarious amount of weight, shifting its balance or pushing it lower in the water, have been common throughout the years even though it seems she wasn't carrying an unusual number of men or guns in comparison to other ships also involved in the battle. But let's now focus right in. What did those there at the time actually think? There was uh, an eyewitness account from the battle of a Fleming, a Flemish person, who was on board the Mary Rose and reported to Francois van der Delft. And he said that at the point where the ship sank, there was a very big gust of wind that blew her over so that she went straight over uh, onto her starboard side and sank. Now, the thing about that is that that is probably what he saw. And it's probably what those who were watching from the shore also saw that the main sail 
literally flying up and flapping in the wind. Now, there is a good reason for that, which is that if you're trying to stop a ship from sinking, the first piece of advice that's provided to any mariner is to stop. Because as you go through the water, more water is pushed into the hull. So the first thing you do is stop. And to stop a sailing ship, particularly one that's got big square rig sails, is that you cut the main lines that go to the main sails at the bottom. You simply hack through them. And that would create a sail flying up on the yardarm above it. So really intriguing. So I think that's where the story about the big gust of wind came from. I think it unlikely that it was just a big gust of wind, because although the Solent can be quite a gusty uh, place to go sailing and slightly unpredictable at times, it's very unlikely that on a hot summer's day you would get such a precisely timed and monumentally large gust of wind that would simply blow her over. One of the most fascinating things about the Mary Rose is the vast number of theories surrounding its mysterious demise. Theories that experts still can't decide on. And whilst Dominic doesn't have much faith in this tale of unpredictable weather, it is still one of the most popular theories among historians today. Although it was originally believed that the Mary Rose's gun ports were too low, allowing water to flood in as the wind pushed the ship onto its side, This aspect of the theory has now been disproven. Instead, definitive archaeological evidence has shown that the gunport lids were in fact left open, whether through incompetence, misadventure or lack of familiarity with this relatively new innovation. But with so many experienced mariners on board, this does seem odd. However, this poor decision-making might make more sense if we understand that things weren't running as smoothly as they might on the Mary Rose that day. As Dominic mentioned earlier, the Vice Admiral George Carew had only just been appointed to his new role as commander to the Mary Rose the day before, and according to his brother, he wasn't impressed by his new crew. There were stories about the crew not being able to be ruled by the officers in charge, And that comes from um, Sir George Carew shouting across in the battle to his uncle, Sir Gawain Carew, that he had the sort of knaves he could not rule. And indeed, that could well have been the case because he didn't have a very strong command of his sailors on that day. And if we consider that they might have been rather preoccupied with avoiding sinking at the same time that they were engaging the French, then that may well be the case, that they would rather ignore the vice-admiral and simply get on with the manoeuvre. So it means that that's not likely to be the cause of the sinking, but something that happened during the circumstances surrounding the sinking. There was also, there's been other work that suggested that there were a lot of foreign mercenaries on board the Mary Rose and that they spoke other languages than English. 
and therefore wouldn't understand commands being given. That's quite possible, but it's unlikely to be the cause of the sinking. Just a quick side note here. In fact, it was actually quite common to have foreign mercenaries on board English ships at this time. And this is definitely something worth remembering for later episodes. Anyway, back to Dominic and what he thinks was ultimately to blame. In most maritime accidents or events, it's a whole sequence of things that come together at a particular point. Too much for the ship to actually deal with, where it becomes overwhelmed by the circumstances. And certainly it's my view that if she'd been shipping water for several hours, the Mary Rose could easily have had about 100 tonnes of water in the hold, which would have been quite sufficient to significantly upset her balance. 100 tonnes of water would equate to about 18 inches water depth in the bottom of the ship. That's all. So it wouldn't look like very much. It would look even less when you consider that the ballast in the Mary Rose was beach shingle, which when you mix it with water, the water disappears, but the beach shingle becomes itself fairly fluid. And so as it moves, it could, as the ship rolls, it could move over to one side quite rapidly and actually produce that final moment of movement that dragged the ship sufficiently low to allow water to come in through the main gun port lids. So come over the sills and onto the main gun deck. Now, that was quite high up in the ship, and so it would have brought her over very quickly. So it just depends on how you actually look at all these various bits of evidence. They probably have a part to play, It's probably part of the truth. We'll probably never exactly know how all of those things came together to actually discover the final cause of the sinking. But the thing is, to Henry, it really didn't matter because he'd seen his ship sink. He wasn't too worried about the crew. He was worried about the loss of the guns. He was worried about the loss of the ship. But that was financial, more of a problem for him in other ways. While we'll most likely never know exactly what happened, one thing is for certain. The dramatic loss of the Mary Rose ensured her place in history. Its tragic demise capturing a moment in time that has been preserved right up to the present day. But wait a moment, that's not quite the end of the story. Because the Mary Rose's sinking didn't signal the end of the Battle of the Solent for everyone. Far from it, in fact. With an English warship foundering in the Solent and the French fleet still lying in wait, was an invasion still on the cards? Using evidence from the time, and by examining the cowdry engraving we spoke about last episode, Dominic tells us what happened next. We have this situation in which The Mary Rose has sunk, but there are still the two fleets there opposing one another. There are still lots of soldiers who want to go and attack England or want to defend England. And again, this is another of the things that we can see in the Cowdray picture, which is that the French, 
in the top left of the picture have landed troops on the eastern end of the Isle of Wight, off Bembridge. And in fact, you can see all these little figures running around and you can see the village of Bembridge being burnt because the French troops attacked Bembridge, set fire to it, really, I think, to try and goad Henry into attacking them on the Isle of Wight, which, had he done so, would have given them a potential for a victory. But the English, really quite imaginatively, used the numbers of troops that they had on the Isle of Wight very carefully and cleverly, and they built a small temporary fortification at Yarbridge, where there's a bridge crossing over a marshy area of Braiding or Bembridge Harbour. And it's shown in the Cowdray picture with a wall and with a couple of guns facing directly along the bridge so that the French troops couldn't try to cross it. And the English had cut down the last arch of the bridge so that the French couldn't easily cross over into the main part of the Isle of Wight. The English had also sent contingent over to try and push the French troops back down to their ships, which they did. And indeed, one of the documentary accounts of the battle talks of a Captain Fisher who was hit by an arrow in the knee and who was heard to call out a hundred pounds for a horse, but a horse could not be found for a hundred pounds. You know, and this predates Shakespeare's my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse. So perhaps that's one of those little anecdotal things from the battle. But the French were then pushed back to their their ships. They had gathered a bit of water and they went back to uh, the, the French fleet. And because the French by that stage had been sitting off St Helens on the eastern end of the island for about three days, they'd been outbreaks of sickness on board the French ships. Not surprising, because if you think about it in Tudor terms, the French army, the French soldiers, were not used to this high-tech environment of sailing ships. You know, they'd normally have been engaged out in the field. They'd be able to make a campfire, cook their own food. They'd be able to just wander off and do the necessary in the bushes or somewhere and dig a hole. How on earth did they deal with such things on board a ship where they couldn't make a fire, they couldn't dig a hole? They weren't in charge. It wasn't their environment. They were surrounded by all of this high-tech equipment and a very strict hierarchy within the ships about who was allowed to do what. And so it's not surprising that the, uh, the situation on the French ships got a little ripe and they needed then to think about doing something. And so the French decided finally that they would simply up anchor and head off down the English Channel to lay siege to the town of Boulogne. That point that had set off this whole invasion attempt at England had become the point to which the French were going to return. The Battle of the Solent was 
one of the most serious threats to England's security that it had ever faced, because it's not very well known. It's easy to overlook the fact that actually the French invasion force was twice the size of that of the Spanish Armada in 1588. But at the end of the day, it was unsuccessful, despite the sinking of the Mary Rose, and eventually the French retreated. So Henry lived to fight another day. And actually, in terms of the impact of the battle, it's perhaps harsh to say minimal, but really in the wake of it, it just went back to that pattern of shifting alliances. Would England make peace with France, perhaps? Would it uh, maintain its alliance with the Holy Roman Empire, although that had already been severed even before the Battle of the Solent. So it really didn't do much to change European relations, certainly during Henry VIII's reign. But I think what happened was that France became the main aggressor and the main rival for England. After that, I would say not as a direct result of the Battle of the Solent, more about circumstances and in particular Henry's successors, his daughter Mary, who came to the throne uh, six years after Henry's death, following uh, her short reigning brother Edward. Mary married Philip of Spain. So that aligned England very decisively with Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. And France was now very much public enemy number one. Next time, we'll be uncovering what life was like on board a Tudor warship. What did sailors do for fun? Was a naval voyage really as gruelling as we might think today? And how could two ovens possibly feed 500 people? Tune in next week to find out. Many thanks to Hannah Matthews, Dr Dominic Fontana and Dr Tracy Borman for being my experts for today's episode. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. Hold up. 